You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Bumper never gets old. I know. I love that thing. That was created by our own Morgan Phillips here. Yes. uh, To introduce this series of messages that we are involved in. This is the third week. And what we are doing, that's why we cut the worship times short, because the material that we're covering is so, uh, well, there's so much that uh, we need to do that. But starting next Sunday, we'll we'll go back to our regular worship service and our regular time in the teaching. But this morning. Let me, let me just quickly. Okay. I got to make that one announcement um, that in, in your hands, hopefully you got a form that's going to ask you if you're a church member to affirm a few things. Uh, One, our elders took recommendations over the last few weeks, met, prayed about, and have met with the two individuals that we are uh, nominating, putting forth as the upcoming elders for the, uh, the class of 2021 through 2023. I feel like an NBA draft here. Um, which are Bob Hoffman and Ryan Nugent. Both men meet the qualifications, are, uh, we believe, really going to be exciting and effective in this role. So we'll ask you as a member, uh, you do have to have a voter ID card as a member to, uh, you got to put your name down at least, and, uh, and we got to know that you're a member here for that to count. Uh, we're also going to ask you to affirm the 2021 budget. Normally we do this in November. We didn't because of COVID. Uh, if you want to know more of the details, then ask me after church. But we are going to ask members to uh, do that either by form or you can scan the QR code above me and make those affirmations. We're going to do this next week as well to make sure we don't miss and anybody. That, t- that budget is reduced by over $100,000. Yeah, 10% of the 2020 budget we Which decreased. part of our the gift of COVID. Yes. <laughs> That's all I got. Okay. Let's jump in. So let's jump in here because we got a long way to go in a short time to get there. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? It does. This morning what we're doing is we're finishing the kind of introduction to the series that we're calling All Systems Go. And that series is ultimately going to be a week-by-week study of what we learn in seminary is called systematic theology. Systematic theology is a way of understanding the the major things uh, of the Scripture, the major doctrinal teachings of the Scripture. And so what it does is it takes a, a doctrine, like the doctrine of God, and goes from Old Testament all the way through the New Testament and lists everything that the Scripture reveals about the character, the nature, and the personhood of God. And we'll do that, and then we'll do that with Christ, we'll do that with uh, the uh, mankind, salvation, sin, all those. About, about 10 or 12 weeks, we're going to be really just taking... The scripture and saying, well, what does the word of God, what does our faith teach? But before we're doing that, we need, we're doing an exegesis of our culture. In other words, we're going to talk about what we believe, but now we're trying to understand in these turmoil kinds of times, what is it that our culture believes and how do these two intersect at all if they do? We're doing this because in my lifetime, America has experienced a worldview shift from what scholars call a worldview of modernism to now we are in the postmodern worldview. Not everybody in America, but this has been the dominant worldview in America over growing, increasing over about the last 40 or 50 years. And the difference between the two is that modernism accepts the reality of objective truth. In other words, modernism is friendly to objective truth. Therefore, modernism 
is friendly to our faith because our faith is built upon the, the reality of objective truth. God has given us His objective truth. But postmodernism, which began this shift in the late 60s that fully reveals itself now in the modern social justice movement, wokeism, all of critical theory and all of those things, it is fully revealing itself now in those is this, this new worldview. And so we are living in a time when we as Christ followers who basically have a worldview that is close to modernism. Our worldview is not a modern worldview. It is a biblical worldview. But modernism is friendly to the biblical, the Judeo-Christian worldview. And now we are facing the majority of our culture that is shifting to a completely different worldview, and that is postmodernism. So the first week, I kind of unpacked postmodernism. Let me give you a quick review. First of all, as I said, postmodernism rejects objective truth. And it says that all truth are simply social constructs. There is no such thing as objective truth, but we create truth in our cultures. We socially construct what we call truth. That concept in postmodernism is referred to as radical skepticism. Postmodernism basically is skeptical of anything that claims to be truth. Second is that a characteristic is social constructs. These truths, as I said, are purely social constructs, and the way they are constructed in our society is by language, is how we speak about certain things. Then we construct socially that which we, uh, we call truth. And these ways of speaking are called meta-narratives. Now that leads us into the third aspect of postmodernism, which is power. So you have no objective truth, you have everything is done by social construct. And the third one is power, that it is the powerful in any society that creates these social constructs, that creates these meta-narratives, and they always do so in order to promote their own power. In other, in other words, so that they can stay in power. So there's no objective truth. It's created by social constructs. And the ones that create these social constructs are the ones who are in the majority and to give them power over the others, and they continue that meta-narrative in order to keep their power. Now, out of postmodernism has grown what is called critical theory. This is all academic stuff created by, by navel-gazing academics, but it, is now, it has now infected our entire culture and our entire world. Last week, Derek spent time unpacking critical theory. All critical theory, you've heard of critical race theory, we're going to talk about another one today. But all critical theory are academic theories that are based upon postmodernism. You have to understand, all critical theory comes out of a postmodern worldview. There is no objective truth. All what we call of truth are social constructs, and those who, who create these are those who are in power and want to stay in power. It's, all critical theory divides us all into only two categories, and that is the oppressor, and the oppressed. And you are born into that category. You are either born into a group that is oppressing, or you are born into a group who is being oppressed. Now, Derek introduced the idea and the concept that has become a part of critical race theory last week called intersectionality. And intersectionality says that you can at one time be a part of three or four different categories where you are being oppressed. But you can also be a part of categories where you are 
you are also oppressing. So you can be oppressed and be an oppressor at the same time according to the concept of intersectionality. Now, the, the critical theory that you're the most familiar with is critical race theory. And that's because it dominates the public debate in our day and time from Washington, D.C., through corporate America, into the educational system. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But this morning, what I want to do before we get to the practical application, finally, we're really going to start getting to the practical application of how this affects us as a faith culture, is to examine one of the critical theories that the vast majority of you have never even heard the term, but when I unpack it for you, you will begin to see its impact upon our culture. Let me ask you, how many of you ever heard of queer theory? There's a handful of you that have even heard of queer theory. By the way, that is not my terminology. That is their terminology. These academics have created this theory called queer theory. It is behind all of the discussion in our culture today about sexuality, about gender, about LGBTQ+. Plus. They've added a plus to the end yep. of that now. And, and to, it's, it's the catch-all. So, well, so this thing won't just keep on growing to the point where it's the whole alphabet, okay? So they've just added a plus. It takes in everything else that's not included in the LGBTQ. So let's talk about queer theory and unpack this a little bit, and then we'll be able to see how it is impacting, not, not only culturally, how it is impacting us in our faith. A definition of queer means anyone who falls out of the binary, Remember, postmodernism and all critical theory rejects binaries. It rejects a binary where there are only two options. There are only two doors. You're either male or female. That is a binary. Postmodernism, critical theory, all of them reject binaries. And so queer theory rejects the binary of male-female, just as all postmodernism does. So to be queer means someone who simultaneously can be male or female or neither, no binary, can present as masculine, feminine, and neuter, or all three at the same time. Or none of them at all. Or none of them at all. Can <clears throat> adopt any sexuality and can change that sexuality at any time or even deny that these categories of sexuality even mean anything in the first place. This is queer theory. Now, the most influential queer theorist, academic, Judith Butler, you could say she's the founder of the modern-day queer theory academic idea, founded somewhere in the late 90s. But the LGBTQ, I mean, the whole issue of heterosexual and homosexual, that's been with us forever. But it has only been encapsulated into a critical theory within about the last 30 years. And Judith Butler was the one that pretty much is pointed to as the one who started that. Queer can be used also verbally. To queer something means this. This is their definition. To cast doubt upon something's stability, to disrupt seemingly fixed categories, and to problematize any binaries within it. So to queer something is to see a binary and then to attack it, okay, in order to destroy the binary, because queer theory hates binaries, as all postmodernism does. So let's talk for a moment about some characteristics, and we're going to get to some really interesting stuff. I'm just kind of laying the foundation so you understand what this means. 
characteristics of queer theory. First of all, it completely separates the ideas or the concepts of sex and gender. They have absolutely nothing to do with one another in queer theory. Sex has to do with the genital organs with which you were born, but gender is, gender is about how you choose to identify yourself, and the two have absolutely no relationship to each other in queer theory. Not only that, but gender is very fluid. It means you can identify as female in gender one day and identify as male the next day, and there is no problem with that because gender is fluid. Now, one way that they can get away with this complete separation of sexual organs and gender is that they would completely reject biology in the discussion of sex and gender. That's written all through their material. This is not me making this up. Biology has absolutely nothing, they say, to add to the discussion about sex and about gender. So when it comes to the one thing in, that would kind of, kind of, well, kind of queer this whole theory, it, it, which is biology, they say, well, that biology doesn't matter. So they reject biology because it has nothing to do with the discussion. So that is a definition of queer theory. What is the goal of queer theory? And, and you can say from here on, when I say queer theory, you can say the modern-day LGBTQ plus movement because they are one and the same now. Everything that is happening in our culture about this issue of sexuality and gender LGBTQ plus is based upon and is rooted in queer theory. The LGBTQ can <laughs> I can't keep saying I couldn't that. Isn't now hear this. This is so important. You've got to understand this. this is where where problems have been caused is not about achieving equal rights for LGBTQ plus people. It is not about that. Now, that is the deception that many people have bought into, and it is a purposeful deception, but that is not what it's about. If that was the case, then this would not be a troublesome issue, and we probably wouldn't even be discussing it, because in a secular society, as ours is, with a constitution and a bill of rights, they are written for everyone who is a citizen of this nation regardless of how you identify, regardless of the sexual organs you were born with. The founders made no distinction in that. Therefore, equal rights should be a given. There's no problem with that from my perspective. There might be some people out there that would argue about it, but you won't get an argument from this guy because our Constitution is written for every American citizen. It doesn't matter whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, whether you're bisexual, whether you're transgender. It doesn't matter. If you're an American citizen, you should be protected under the, under the Bill of Rights and the Constitution of the United States. That is not the problem. But that is not the goal of queer theory either, and you have to understand that. I used to say as I would see more and more of these kinds of relationships being depicted out in media and television and movies as being just normal human interaction, I used to say that the goal of this was to normalize this behavior mm. to where they wanted to be seen as, as normal, and the feeling was that if we can be seen as normal, then we will not be discriminated against and we will be able to have equal rights. As I've gone deeper and deeper into the academic level of queer theory and critical theory of all and postmodernism, I've come to understand that the goal is much more deep than that. It's much bigger than that. The goal of queer theory is not to be seen as normal and thus be accepted. It is to do away with the very concept 
of normality. Now, as you read this, this material, you'll come very quickly to that. It is not to be, they don't want to be seen as normal. They want to do away with any concept of normality because as long as there still is a concept of normality, then there will be that which is abnormal and there will be oppression and the oppressed. So the goal is not to be normal. The goal is to do away with that category completely. Now, that is important. And that is why their stated political, uh, 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 their, their stated political agenda in their literature is to challenge the very idea and to destroy the very idea of normality from American culture. So that's the goal. It is not about getting equal rights. Equal rights should be a, should be a given. It is not about that. It is about destroying all sense of what is normal. Therefore, there is no abnormal. You understand that? Third, how influential is queer theory? <laughs> the influence of queer theory. It's the one that most of you have never heard of. You've all heard of critical race theory. Let me tell you, queer theory is much more influential in our culture and has much more power than any of the other critical theories. Let me give you an illustration of how this works. How many of you have heard of the Equality Act that was just passed by the Democrat Party through the House of Representatives February 25th, 2021? The Equality Act, you've heard of that. The Equality Act is a misnomer that sounds like, well, this is about getting people equality. It is not about equality, okay? That is a good way of saying it because if they said the stated the real purpose, most people would rise up in arms. So that's a good way. You've got to understand the terminology that is used is so deceptive in postmodernism and in critical theory. Here is, here is a statement from the act itself, written. If you want to Google it, you can look at this, you can look at the uh, Equality Act up, and this is what it states. The, this bill prohibits discrimination based upon sex, <laughs> sexual orientation, and gender identity in areas including public accommodations and facilities, education, federal funding, employment, housing, credit, and the jury system. Specifically, the bill defines and includes sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity among the prohibited categories of discrimination and segregation. So in essence, what the Equality Bill does is it adds the LGBTQ plus movement to the Civil Acts Right of 1964. Because the Civil Acts Right of 1964 outlawed discrimination in all those categories of women and of people of color. That was what was signed into law in 1964. So the Equality Act is adding one more category to the 1964 Civil Rights Movement and that uh, bill, and that is the LGBTQ plus movement. You understand that? So they're adding another category to the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. Again, no problem. Now in 1994, and folks, I, I realize most of you have never dug into this, it's just nerds like me that try to understand this stuff. I have a legal training background, and so I'm fascinated by this stuff, and I, I try to dig deep. I want you to understand something here. In 1994, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Have any of you ever heard of the what's called the RFRA? Most probably don't. Maybe you did back in 94 when it was being passed, but it's gone into history now. 
That was 30 years after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Now, that's interesting. Restoration Act. That religious freedom had to be restored in 1994. And the reason for that is because after the Civil Rights Act, there was some, some federal legislation that was passed that infringed upon our First Amendment freedom of expression of religion rights. And so, in 1994, this Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed to close that loophole where federal law could not, Im, could not influence and could not impede upon our free exercise of religion as given to us in the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Bill Clinton was the president at that time. He signed it into law. Guess who sponsored the RFRA? House Representative Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. They co-sponsored the bill. My health things have changed. My health things have changed. So 30 years ago, Chuck Schumer, who at the time was in the House of Representatives, he had not yet run for, for Senate, and Nancy Pelosi, who has always been in the House, they co-sponsored the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it was passed, as I said, to assure that religious freedom was secured from being impinged upon by any federal law that was passed. That no federal law passed by Congress, as the First Amendment says, could infringe upon our fully protected rights freedom of expression, freedom of religion, given to us by the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment that says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, the founders of our nation, folks, came from a religiously oppressive environment in England, King of England, Church of England was, a, was, was the church required, if you were not of the Church of England, you were persecuted and repressed in England. They came over here primarily for the purpose of having freedom of religious expression. So they were very sensitive to put that into the Constitution and, and protect freedom of religion in these colonies and in these United States. So the religious reformation, or what I say, religious... What is it? Freedom Restoration Act. <laughs> the Religious Freedom Rest... You know, bureaucracies just give these names that you can't remember. The RFRA. Yeah. The RFRA was passed in 94 to come back and shore up the First Amendment in effect. Okay? Because some federal laws had kind of begun to impinge. And so Congress felt it important to remind Americans and pass law that, that First Amendment cannot be infringed upon. Okay? Well... It has fulfilled that purpose in the intervening 30 years. There have been some issues that have come up. But you may remember a few years ago the Little Sisters of the Poor, the Catholic nunnery who ran uh, uh, folks' uh, homes for elderly people who would have been destitute without that. They took that on as their mission as the Little Sisters of the Poor. They operated senior adult living homes to give them dignity and a place to, to, to live until they died. Well, the sisters had employees that had to do all of the things, and so because of the employees, they had health insurance. Obamacare required that they have health insurance, that they provided. But within the Obamacare, within the Affordable Care Act, was a provision that if you were an employer of over X number, you were required by law 
to provide this health care. Not only that, you were required by the law of the ACA to provide contraceptives and the week after pill, which is basically an abortion pill that can be taken within one week of conception and it will abort the unborn baby, that you are required by the ACA in your health insurance to provide that free to your employees. Well, the Little Sisters of the Poor, they're a Catholic agency and they completely, contraception and obviously abortion is totally against their faith stance. So the Obama government came up against them and threatened them in millions of dollars of fines if they did not violate their religious faith and provide this in their health care for their employees. The Little Sisters of the Poor had no choice but to sue uh, the Obama administration. They used the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as their defense that Congress had passed in 1994 to protect the very thing that the AC was attempting to infringe upon that that had already been guaranteed in the First Amendment. But the ACC, ACA violated our First Amendment rights and thank God Congress had passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the Little Sisters of the Poor won. By the way, what kind of monster do you have to be to take to court and sue an organization called the Little Sisters of the Poor. Like, I just want to give them you a hug, pretty, you right? Be, like, you got to be pretty mean. you got to be mean, man. Yeah. That's just wrong. And these are nuns who have taken a vow of poverty, yet they're going to sue the organization for millions of dollars. We're taking I mean, these monsters to court. Who? Yeah. The Little Sisters, Sisters of, of the, the poor. poor. We're going to make them provide abortion for all of their employees. Oh, Give me a break. It's just so They've sad. taken a vow of chastity for life and have taken a vow of poverty for life in order to serve the poor, but we're going to sue you for millions of dollars because you won't give them the abortion pill. Right. Now, that in essence is what happened, which was a violation of the First Amendment, but that wouldn't have been good enough because it was the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1994 that they actually used as their defense, and they won, and also Hobby Lobby used the same RFRA as their defense, against this, and they won. So there have been some really good victories for religious freedom based upon the 1994 Act. It's been doing what it was designed to do. Now we come back to the Equality Act. Are you with me? The Equality Act that just went through the House and is about to go to the Senate. I believe it is going to be passed into law unless a few Democrats grow a backbone and stand up against it. Um, we'll see. But it's been, it's been in the House for years. They've been trying to get this thing through. Now they have full control of all three branches of government, so this is their opportunity to get it done. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or the Equality Act, has a carve-out in it. I'm not making this up. You can go and read the Act. You can Google it and you find it. It specifically states the Equality Act, which is against adding, you know, uh, LGBTQ to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 says the Religious Freedom Restoration Act cannot be used as a defense against the Equality Act. It's written in the law if this passes. Do you understand that? Because it has been used as a defense to defend our First Amendment freedom of religion rights in the last 30 years, the Equality Act has written it out as a defense within the Equality Act itself. If you get sued for discrimination, you cannot appeal to the 1994 Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed by the Congress of the United States of America. You cannot use it as a defense. So, in actuality, the Equality Act is stronger than the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It is giving greater 
power to the LGBTQ community than it does to women or people of color in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Because it's carved out and says you can't use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a defense if you get sued for discrimination against someone who's LGBTQ. Now what does that mean for us? Well, there are a lot of ramifications. Um, we don't yet know what they're all going to be. We never do until a law is passed. And I believe this one will. But let me give you one scenario for us as a church. And this is just one. There could be thousands. Suppose that a transgender person applies for a staff position at City on the Hill. And they interview well. They have references. They do well. They obviously have some experience. And we hire this person, believing that we're hiring a man or believing that we're hiring a woman, whichever. It doesn't matter. But we later discover that this is a transgender person. The way they presented themselves is as a female, they're actually a male, or if they present themselves as a male, they're actually a female. And of course, we have to graciously and with love release them from being the youth pastor at City on a Hill. Then we can be sued for discrimination against LGBTQ. But according to the Equality Act, we cannot appeal to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1994 as a defense in our favor. So what they've done, they've seen that this has been effective in protecting religious liberty, that this should be guaranteed without it in the First Amendment. They've seen that it's been effective, so they've carved it out and said you cannot use that as a defense. Now the constitutionality of the Equality Act obviously is going to be tested, and whether it's going to stand or fall in the courts, we do not know. Whether it does or not, it gives us an idea of what they are seeking to accomplish in our culture. They are seeking to elevate LGBTQ rights over the right that is granted to us in the First Amendment and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1994. And the ramifications here, folks, are amazing. If they were willing to sue the Little Sisters of the Poor for millions of dollars, think what they would do to City on the Hill. They would shut us down. They would take every asset we have and liquidate it, and we'd be out of business. Now, this is the heart of postmodernism. This is the heart of critical theory. This is the, now let me say this, this is the worldview of the modern Democrat Party. Not always has been. The days of Tip O'Neill or Ronald Reagan are gone, where they could compromise. This is the heart and soul of the modern Democrat Party. We just all have to understand this. This is why I have been fighting this for years. Because I understand not only the demonic nature of postmodernism and of critical theory, but I understand the ramifications for people of faith. And this is not just for Christians, folks. This is for Muslims. This is for Jews. This is for anyone who is a person of faith in America. They want to to elevate the rights of the LGBTQ over the rights of religious freedom. That's why they have more power, more lobbying power in, in uh, Washington and in our culture than even critical race theory or any of the others. Now, let me, let me, let me, talk, about, let me talk about another critical theory real quick, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. There's another critical... Well, I'm not either, am I? You've got an application to make as well. Huh? Yeah, you still have the family. Okay, okay. Another critical theory that most of you have never heard of is post-colonial theory. Not probably only a handful of you ever heard of that. But the key tenet of post-colonial theory, understand this, is that there are to be no boundaries 
There are to be no borders. Post-colonial theory is based upon the idea of no national boundaries. What the current administration is doing on the southern border is rooted in post-colonial theory. Now, they don't say that, and you don't understand that because you don't understand what post-colonial theory teaches. But believe me, it is there because post-colonial theory says borders are evil between nations. There should be no there are no borders. Borders should be open. That is why the very first step on the first day of President Biden's administration, he stopped the construction of the wall because any kind of separation like that is anathema to post-colonial theory. A few years ago, the European Union experimented with doing away with borders. You remember that? Where you could travel freely among any nation within the European nation without a passport, without anything. That was an experimentation, putting your toe in the water about this whole doing away with national boundaries. And the result was devastating because the terrorists used it to, to go around and, and do their thing. The very same thing is happening at our southern border right now. Now, the average Democrat doesn't know this. The average individual has no idea about this. But let me tell you, the people that are driving this postmodern boat are basing it upon post-colonial theory. It is not about just brown people wanting to have a better life in America. What feeling person would not feel for that and want that? It is about destroying borders. Now, this is a first step, obviously, because they're saying, no, this is not about open borders. Folks, that is what it is about. That is the first step toward post-colonial theory being recognized in the United States of America. Me, I understand. And let me just say real fast, too, that, that the thing we're trying to convey here over the last three weeks is not for you to focus on these issues as individual issues. Whether you have an opinion about these issues is, is another discussion. What we want you to understand is the driving, underpinning philosophy that guides these issues. There can be issues that you see happening that you agree with, that you, you want. Yeah, we want people who want to take refuge in the United States to have a fair shot at doing that. Absolutely. It's not about looking at the issues on a surface level, but what is the underlying philosophy that drives this? The goal is not to let these desperate people just come to America to have a better life. The goal is to destroy all borders. That's right. You have to understand that. And this is the first step to it. So how does, this, how does postmodernism and, and, all, and critical theory, how does it intersect with the biblical view of the family? Well, our faith is rooted in a concept of the nuclear family. The first institution God established before he established Israel and the church was the family. The family is at the heart of the Judeo-Christian worldview and at the heart of the Bible. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. That's the first family. That's the first marriage. It is male and female. It is husband and wife. It is God's creative plan. In the New Testament, Jesus confirmed that in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever Therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. So this is a part of God. This, this is the nuclear family, the first institution that God created at the very beginning. The image then of husband and wife is used in the New Testament over and over to look at the, the relationship of Jesus to the church. Right? It says that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. Okay? Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives 
as Christ has loved the church. There's that analogy, and gave himself up for her. Then verse 31, he reiterates what was said in Genesis, what Jesus said, a man shall leave his father and mother and give himself to his wife, and the two shall become one. So the scripture is binary. Okay, our faith is based upon the binary of the nuclear family. It is uh, male-female. It is husband and wife. It is the nuclear family. That is our biblical worldview. It is the biblical worldview. Jesus held to the biblical worldview. So now, what is postmodernism's and critical theories view of the family. We have to understand that. Well, their definition of family is somewhat different than ours. It can be, a marriage can be between any two willing people. And that now is the law of the land in America. What is queer theory's goal? Is queer theory's goal acceptance of that definition? No. It is destruction of the very concept of a nuclear family. It goes beyond just saying, well, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. No, it must destroy the very concept of nuclear family or it will always be in that oppressed state. Because this will be normal, this will be abnormal. So it must destroy that which is normal in order to be able to do its thing. Edward Shorter, in his Making of the Modern Family, was the first one to describe family from a postmodern worldview, and he said one descri description, one characteristic of postmodernism is the destruction of the notion of the nuclear family. It's in his words. It is the destruction of the notion of the nuclear family. Now, one's choice, our choice is, is God's creative plan or it is man's creative plan of postmodernism and queer theory, and of all critical theory. You see, that is why postmodernism and all critical theory is hostile to the biblical worldview of marriage and the family. So, let's talk about, then, if the nuclear family is to be destroyed in its current state, as it is stated in Scripture, where historically have we always said values are to be passed to the next generation? Where does that happen? Sunday in school. <laughs> in the family. God's Word has always taught us from the beginning to the end that it is the nuclear family, the Christian family, the Judeo-Christian family's responsibility to pass their value system onto their children. It is not to be handed over to the church. That is not our role. Our role is to stand beside the nuclear family and help them and encourage them and back them up. But it is always the nuclear family that stands at the very heart of the passing of values, Christian values, down to the next generation. Ephesians 6.1, bring up your children in the love and the admonition of the Lord. He didn't say, church, teach these folks' kids how to live. He said, you bring your children up in the love and the admonition of the Lord. But if there is no nuclear family, then who teaches values in the postmodern world? Who's best suited to teach values in the postmodern world? The education system. The postmodern idea of teaching values is taken from the nuclear family because that's got to go away and is given into the hands of the educational system. Postmodernism says, give us your children and we will instill our values in them. And this is happening today in our culture from grade school all the way through the university. Now, not everywhere... Places in Texas is happening, places in Texas is not happening, but it is happening all over the nation. In the postmodern view, 
the role of education is not just to educate, but it is to indoctrinate. It is to inculcate values of postmodernism, and that's how it's been woven into our culture. Every week there are new examples of this. I just picked out three that have happened in the last 10 days. I mean, if I went back a couple of years, I could have hundreds of examples of how this is happening in school systems all over America. The recent California Board of Education controversy where the California Board of Education was approving a curriculum for ethnic studies recently. It was a big controversial thing in California. It is rooted in critical race theory. This curriculum is. Well, there were parents all over California that began to kick back about that. Uh, And when you read the curriculum, most thinking parents would probably kick back against it. Except for those who are the most radical. A fellow by the name of Manuel Rustin chaired the subcommittee of the Instructional Quality Commission that oversaw the drafting of the curriculum. In other words, so Manuel oversaw the committee that was supposed to write the material. This is his statement about the kickback in California against this ethnic studies. He said, many people who say they are in support of ethnic studies want perhaps multicultural studies. If you talked about ethnic studies, your kids doing ethnic studies in schools, that's what you would think it is, Right? We want our children to be aware of other cultures. We want them to study other ethnic entities and other cultures. Okay, that's what the average parent thinks. Right. That's not what this is about. He says, or they would perhaps want multicultural, or some other way of exploring culture and race, but in a way that's less critical of actual systems of power. There's where critical race theory comes in. Power, oppression, oppressed. He says... And this studying of critical actual systems of power is fundamental to a course in ethnic studies. You have to have it, he says. And the continued pressure to make ethnic studies something that isn't has been the really unfortunate part of this whole experience. He's he's bemoaning that parents have kicked back against critical race theory being the basis upon which they're doing these ethnic studies. Then he makes a statement. Ethnic studies without critical race theory is not ethnic studies. So critical race theory is imposing values. It is telling white kids you've got to stop acting white because you are an oppressive color. You're born into it. You've got to stop doing it. That is not education. That is indoctrination. It is values-based. Raleigh, North Carolina school system recently introduced diversity training into the school system in Raleigh, North Carolina. Critical theory, once again, was at the heart of it, and parents kicked back. Documents from the teacher training that have been uh, 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 obtained, uh, training teachers in this curriculum, here are a couple of statements that came out of that training material. White parents' children are benefiting from the system of whiteness and are not learning at home about diversity, LGBTQ, and race. One teacher in the training asked, well, how do we handle parent pushback on this? This is what the trainer said. We cannot let parents deter us from the work. Folks, that's an ominous ominous statement. It says, where the parents agree with this or not, we are charged with the responsibility to inculcate their children with critical race theory. Loudoun County, Virginia, which happens to be the richest county in America, their curriculum is rooted in critical race theory. But the parents who oppose that are so afraid to do it publicly that the parents have begun to meet in secrecy to discuss this issue. It was found out, it was discovered by the school officials 
who formed a Facebook page to out these undisobedient parents who were kicking back and to shame them and to encourage people to retaliate against them. This is happening in America right now. You, Google it this afternoon. Any of you, if you want to Google it, do some work, you can discover all the same stuff. Folks, are you getting this? Now, I've got to wrap my part up. Folks, I am a warrior, okay? I'm a prophet by nature. That means I'm a warrior. It is the thing that people love and the thing that people hate the most about me. When they love my warrior calling, if you will, is when I stand for those who need someone to stand for them and with them. And I've done that. I've practiced that for 37 years. I will stand with a person who needs someone with authority and with a certain amount of power to stand and speak in, be- in behalf of them. I've done it repeatedly with some of you. No matter what the cost to me personally, no matter what the cost to this church, no matter how wealthy the people are that leave because they don't like to hear the pastor do that, I will stand for you when you need someone to stand for you. I have a track record of doing that. But the part they hate is when I stand against you because you need someone to stand against you. I'm the hero when I stand for you because you need someone to stand for you. I'm the zero when I stand against you because you need someone to stand against you. And I am standing against some of you in this church right now. I am telling you, you need to repent. You are supporting, if not willfully, at least complicitly, a godless agenda that hates your faith. There's the key. It hates your faith. And I'm done. Mm. Well, and I will do this to my death for yes. both categories. Yes, yes. Well, let's talk about, let's go even further. How does it intersect with truth? How does this intersect? How, we've, been, we've been unpacking postmodernism and critical theory. How does it intersect with the very concept of truth? Uh, if you've been around over the last couple of weeks, you've heard us say over and over again, postmodernism doesn't really jive well with truth. It doesn't because it can't. It rejects truth. It not only rejects truth, it seeks to destroy it. It says there is no objective truth whatsoever, and anything that perpetuates the narrative of objective truth should be viewed as hostile and eliminated. Now, this is a problem for Christians. Whether you, whether you want to agree or not, it is a problem for our faith. Why? Because the whole basis of our faith sits upon a God who is himself true. And he is not only true, but he is the truth. Jesus in John 14.6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Christians, we affirm this. This is something that matters to us. This is a foundational belief for us. God is the truth. Not only that, but God leads us in truth. John 16, 13, talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. We affirm this once again, do we not? God is the truth. He leads us in truth. He, he, he demands to be worshipped in truth. John 4.24, we're told to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Beyond that, it is the truth of God that protects us from the lies, schemes, and attacks of the enemy. Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the full armor of God. Part of that full armor, Ephesians 6.14, is the belt of truth. These are theological truths that are fundamental to the very fabric of our faith. Now, this creates tension, does it not, with us and the world. We are going to face criticism. There will be tension in our lives as we relate to the world because the world seeks to dismantle and destroy truth. Everything that we hold as valuable to us is built on the the concept of objective truth. Now, here's the deal. Everything that I just unpacked, all, all that truth, falls within what I would consider the private arena. Okay, And what I mean by that, it, it's not the public arena. These are private arena truths. These are things that we discuss, that we confess, that we hold to inside the church. We're a historically confessional faith. We confess truth that has been passed down to us, beginning with Jesus, handed down to the apostles, and then given to the church. And, and it has remained a truth for 2,000 years now. We, are, we confess a historical truth. But these are things that we confess within these walls. We don't expect the world to agree with these things. We don't expect the world to affirm. Otherwise, they would be Christians too. There'd be no distinction. So we don't expect that. In other words, these are things that <clears throat> you are likely not arguing about on Facebook with your secular friends. <laughs> Very few of you are probably getting in debates with your secular friends about the substitutionary atonement of Christ, or the fatherhood of God, or the sonship of Jesus. Now, maybe some of you are, but but overwhelmingly, the things that you are debating, talking about, arguing about, whatever terminology you want to use, on, on social platforms or in social arenas have to do with abortion, sexual identity, immigration, injustice, you name it. They're public arena issues. So here's what happens. When we talk about how postmodernism and critical theory intersects with truth, we immediately go to the private arena and we go, well, that's not going to happen. I would, never, I would never deny the Trinity or I would never deny the fill in the blank. And, and we neglect to talk about that public arena where truth is also very much needed. So here's what happens in my generation. And, and I'm going to, again, speak to, to primarily my generation and younger, although some of you in the older generations fall into this category as well. When, when these kinds of discussions come up, what is typical is this kind of mindset that says, well, why should I as a Christian care about this? These are secular problems. What's happening in the universities and the schools, this is, this is secular stuff. Why, why should I as a Christian have an, even have an opinion on it? Why, why should I force my faith into a, a secular... America isn't a Christian nation. Why should I force my religion into the public realm? Does this ring any bells for any of you? I know it does. I know it does because not even a month ago, about a month ago, when, when James and I began down this trail of really breaking this stuff down and tracing out all of the, the eventual end points of this stuff, this is more of where I, I trended as well. My, my commitments are to the kingdom of God. My commitments are to the church. My commitment is to spiritual development here. Why are, we getting, why are we getting wrapped up in all that out there? This is the younger mindset. This is also the voice of some very loud evangelical leaders. Some in the evangelical faith are saying things like that. I'll, vo- I'll vote according to my conscience, but if things go south, we don't need to get involved. Who really cares about universities and public schools? The really spiritual ones will say things like, we just need to worry about the kingdom. The kingdom of God, not the kingdom of men. Men hold elections, but God is sovereign. (laughs) 
That's why they've screamed at me to get out of the political right. arena. Right, right. So let's talk Just about shut that. up and preach the Bible, yeah, James. Right, yeah, yeah. Don't have anything to do. So let's talk about that. This is where I think we as Christians have failed, and I'll use that word very strategically, to understand what it means to be the light of the world. Okay? Uh, if, if truth is truth, in other words, if we hold to objective truth, then we should stand for it regardless of what arena we're in. In other words, if we believe something to be true here, inside these one, two, three, four, five, six, like seven or eight walls, then we should also stand for it out there. Otherwise, we, we don't really believe that it's true. And it's our lack of conviction, folks, that has led us to the point that we are at right now in society. I thought about this this week, that the, when you consider the Old Testament people of God, and you look at the times throughout the Old Testament where God disciplined them, he, he never disciplines them for abandoning theological truth. You don't see that happening. It's never for the lack of truth in the synagogue or in the temple that they're being disciplined. They never really veer away from, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Even when you get to the New Testament, you, you have the Pharisees, the chief opponents of, of Jesus. They're highly educated, theologically rigorous individuals. It's not their theological commitments that are the problem. It is their application of their theological commitments that is the problem. It's their behavior, in other words, in the public arena that is the problem. If you've been in our Sunday schools, we call them life Bible studies here. Uh, recently, we studied verse by verse through the book of Amos. Really will draw a crowd, by the way. <laughs> Like you, you are, was a hacked off you, are, you are committed to Scripture. Let me just say this, faithful people of City on a Hill, if you will study verse by verse through Amos. Amos is my hero. Amos is great. Amos is a farmer, and he, he's called to go and, and give a harsh message, a needed message to the people. And, and why? Was it their lack of Bible study? Was it their lack of theology that God was chastising them for? No. It was the way that they handled themselves in the public arena, the way they treated outsiders, the way they, they took advantage of people who were in lower class systems, the way that they conducted themselves in public affairs. Consider the words of Isaiah, and, and this is, man, this is eerily true for us today. And I realize, let me just say up front, this is a passage about Israel, okay? What I am not saying right now is that America is Israel, so don't hear <laughs> me say that. I'm not even addressing America right now. I'm addressing the church. Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament. The church is the people of God in the New Testament. So we as the people of God can learn something from our predecessors. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.6 that the things that happened to the Old Testament people of God happened as examples for us. So we have some things to learn from them, both in their failures and in their success. Isaiah says to Israel, this is Isaiah 59.9. He says, therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Did you hear that? We hope for light. We desire justice. And all we have is darkness. He goes on, and this is where it really gets rough for us. Isaiah 59, verses 14 and 15. He says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. Not in the temple, not in the synagogues, in the public squares. And the uprightness cannot enter. 
Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord, Yahweh, saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Why has justice turned away? Why do we experience injustice in the world? Why is there no righteousness? Why does the Lord look down and is displeased? It is because truth has stumbled, not in the temple, not in the synagogues, not in the church, in the public square. You see, God is laying out an expectation here. And it's an expectation that we desperately need to understand as God's people. He expects his people to advocate for truth, not just in theological matters, but in the public arena as well, in social settings. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Well, America isn't a Christian nation. I'm not talking about America and making it a Christian nation. I am talking about being Christ followers who advocate for the truth regardless of where we are. I would be saying this if I wasn't in America right now. If I were in Africa, or if I were in Saudi Arabia, or if I were in a truly destitute place like, I don't know, Canada. <laughs> you like I that? always thought those Canadian mounted no. police were kind of cool. No, it's, it's, a, they it's, a, had a cool... it's a place of darkness. No, he... It's a place of now, darkness. Now get this, get this, folks. This, the distinction he's drawing is where we... Christ followers come to church and we shout truth and we go out in the public square and we don't practice. Honestly, what else does it mean? Answer this. Answer this in your mind. You don't have to say it out loud. What else does it mean when Jesus says in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world? What does he mean? I thought that meant you're the light of the church. Right. Come and talk about right. the truth you believe inside the church. If it isn't to advocate for truth in public, then what else is Jesus saying? Imagine for a moment that Jesus comes and calls the American church together. And he says, look, I'm not, it's not the second coming yet. This is just a sideline, quick little... <laughs> Quick little, just like, a short visit. Yeah, we just need to have a, a just to address a few things, right? So he calls the An American church to silence. Yeah, and he says, "I want to remind you, church, you are the light of the world." And we go, I, "Hold on, Jesus, America isn't a Christian nation. I, I don't know that you want us." Should we be imposing forcing, our values, forcing our beliefs on them? I mean, do you hear how actually idiotic that is? This is why, again, this is so demonic. It is as if the people of God have been veiled from the truth. How did we get here? How did we get here? How did we get to this place where we decided that it was okay to not speak up on specific issues lest we offend someone? Now, and understand this. I'm not giving you the license to go be a butthole in the name of truth in the public arena. That is a theological term we it both is. learned in seminary. But listen, if we will not do this, who will? If not us, who? And again, this is not a left versus right argument. Do not come at me with text messages or emails. What are the Republicans doing? What are the Democrats doing? Probably nothing. Because neither side sucks at getting this right. Neither side has answers for this. I don't expect them to have answers for this. Do you know why? Because Jesus wasn't addressing Republicans or Democrats when he said, you are the light of the world. He was addressing the church. And they're not going to get it done. This is our fight. The difference is, and how politics play into this, is that one party is willing to let us fight this fight, and the other wants to shut us down. The other wants to silence us. That's how this, that's how this works together. If you want to know how it fits in, both suck at solving problems, but one will allow us to solve these problems, and the other wants us silenced. Look, when, when ideology that, that perpetrates division 
hatred, destruction, like critical theory in postmodernism, rises to meet real problems happening in the world, like racism, sexism, and other various forms of injustice, the only hope the world has is the church speaking truth against it. There are two things that we cannot do as the people of God. One, we cannot be silent. We cannot be okay with counterfeit truth coming into play. We can't be okay with it. It stands against everything that we believe. It wars against the fabric of objective truth upon which our faith is built. Again, not talking about fighting for America. I'm talking about fighting for truth. This isn't patriotism. This is basic Christian conviction. Truth matters to God. Don't let it stumble in the public square, he says. I would borrow a phrase from critical theory that I actually completely agree with. I've agreed with it in, in almost every form of its usage, in, in, in the presence of actual racism, in the presence of sexism, in the presence of, again, various forms of injustice. And I would apply it here today to the church standing against critical theory. And that is this. Silence is complicity. If you believe it in the other categories, you better believe it here. If the church is willing to be silent in the face of an evil ideology, we're complicit. We don't get to just pretend like it's not happening and stay in our corner. Our corner is not a thing. Otherwise, we're only the light of the church. Exactly. This is, and folks, understand this. This is why Israel failed. What were they called to be? A light to the Gentile nations. And what were they? Not a light to the Gentile nations. This is what God calls us to. We cannot be silent. Silence is complicity. Number two, we can't compromise either. You can't compromise. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So to come back around and answer this question, how does critical theory and postmodernism intersect with truth? To put it plainly, like a car crash. (laughs) It doesn't really intersect, it collides. It collides. We are called to speak truth, not only here, but out there in the public square, to stand for truth here and out there. Let me give you, let me give you a truth. I guess, and I guess the question that needs to be asked, are we so concerned with our personal safety that we're not willing to crash? Absolutely. That we're not willing to crash That's what this on. is about. Well, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. We're going to talk about the safety issue. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to wrap that up nicely with that. Let me give you a truth. The church will either be the light of the world or a lie to the world. We will either be light in a dark world, or we will be a lie about who God is and what he is doing. We'll be light if we stand in truth, or we'll be a lie in silence and in compromise. Let me, let me wrap this up with how this intersects with the gospel. Surely you understand that if truth is an issue within this framework, then the gospel is also a major problem. Can, can we agree that the gospel is important to us? Hopefully, please, yes, resoundingly, yes. Right. It is the power of God it's unto okay salvation. To say yes. It's okay to yes. You're not sure what you can say yes to yeah. anymore. <laughs> so, so then understand this. To proclaim the gospel in our current framework will, will most certainly bring consequences to us. James texted me this morning, and I want to give credit where credit's due. This is a great way of looking at this, and, and, and it really demonstrates how these things are, are utter uh, incompatibilities with one another, critical theory and the gospel. Critical theory is based upon 
a principle that says to bring yourself up, you must take another down. Right? This is where the oppressed, oppressor categories happen. The gospel says you must take yourself down in order to lift another up. They're, they're fundamentally opposite. Fundamental. Look in the New Testament and find me a place where God says to tear others down in order that you might rise. You will not find it. It says, in other words, or in, in, in uh, actually retrospect to that, that you were to have this mind among you, the mind of Christ, to consider yourself a servant, to consider yourself as nothing to hold others as more important than yourselves. They're diametrically opposed to one another. One is based on law, one is based on grace. One brings about some surface level change, the other brings about heart transformation. They're totally different. I want to close with this passage in Galatians 2 because it, 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 it really hits us right where James just said about our own, our own comfort and why we avoid these conversations in the public square. It has to do with Paul, the apostle, confronting the apostle Peter uh, for uh, what he calls hypocrisy. In Galatians 2.11, it says that uh, when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is another name for Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, this is harsh terminology. What did Peter do that, that granted this? Paul tells us, starting in verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, James here in this passage is referring to the half-brother of Jesus. He's a devout Jew himself. He's the leader in the church in Jerusalem. He's an extremely important, public, and powerful figure in the early church. Apparently, he sent some men from that church down to where uh, Peter was, and this created some issues prior to their coming. The interesting thing, this is after Jesus had given Peter a vision that all foods now are clean. Right, yeah. And, Not and, kosher anymore. And because of that vision, prior to their coming, Peter had been eating these previously unclean foods. He'd been, a, he'd been, yeah, he'd been smelling the bacon sandwiches that the, the BLTs, the Gentiles were cooking up every day. And finally he went, man, I had a vision. This is good. God put it on the menu. Let's do it. Shrimp cocktails, bring it all out, right? He's living it up. And all of a sudden these very Jewish men show up and Paul continues. He says, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. He goes, bacon? No, I don't like, I don't no, eat bacon. no. no. So the, so the Jewish men show up. Peter immediately goes back to being the upright religious Jewish version of Peter. We're going to avoid Gentiles out of almost this judgment. They're, they're second-class Christians. And, and beyond that, Peter's behavior becomes contagious. Other Christians take note of what he's doing, and they follow suit. Verse 13 says, The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So your behavior is contagious. Other Christians see what you're doing, how you're engaging in the public square. They're likely to follow suit. They follow because, to come back to James' point, they don't want to be seen negatively by those in power. They don't want the reputation. They don't want the criticism that comes with it. It's just easier to stop and go back to what is socially acceptable. I don't want to be the target. I don't want to have to be the, you know, to answer these debates on Facebook. Just go back to condemning it. Bacon was good. I'll eat it in private. <laughs> Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, what he's saying is, if you, Peter, eat bacon sandwiches, how are you going to, com to compel the Gentiles to stop eating bacon sandwiches? You're a hypocrite. Now, what's the connection to us? Some of you are like Peter. 
You come to church. You, you agree with the Bible. You, you say amen to scriptural truth, even controversial scriptural truth. When we talk about abortion being a sin, that is an objectively true statement we are making from the scriptures, from drawing out theological commitments from the scriptures. And you agree with those things. When we talk about the incompatibility with the LGBTQ plus community, you agree with those things. Amen, pastor. And then you go out there into the world or on social media and you play it off like you agree with the world. And you even take shots at Christians who speak out against these things. And the scriptures say to you, you are not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. You're a hypocrite. And you require confrontation. Now, I'm not, we're not going to publicly confront you. Peter was a very public figure. I think the way Paul addressed that was appropriate for who he was. But you require confrontation, self-confrontation, confrontation surely from the Holy Spirit. It requires repentance. But you have to decide first the most important factor. Come back to square one where we all began three weeks ago. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Make up your mind. Don't vacillate between the two. Make your decision, and what you decide in here, make sure you do it out there as well. We have gone these three weeks so much longer in the teaching because there are libraries full of information written about each one of the subjects. And we've tried to cover this in three weeks to give you the, the Reader's Digest version, the nuts and bolts that really impact us in our culture and our faith. We will go back to our regular schedule next week of full worship time, limiting our teaching time to where we're out in an hour and 15 minutes in the worship time. But this is so important that we do this. Now, I need to make an announcement. I have requested that the elders take my title of senior lead pastor and give that to Derek, and I will assume the title of teaching pastor. I've been the senior pastor of this church since its beginning 37 years ago. Um, it is time for the titles to change. Nothing really is changing because I have been giving over to Derek for several years the, the role of senior pastor that I carried for all of those many years. He coordinates the staff. I don't even go to staff meeting anymore in preparation for the day when I will not be able to be here, and, and I want a seamless transition. So we're by making this change of titles, we're not doing anything that's not already being done. We're just mirroring the reality of what is. I am no longer functioning as the lead pastor, as a senior pastor of this church, and haven't for several years. Derek has been functioning that under my mentorship and in agreement together. My primary role has been teaching Sunday morning. I take the lead on that. We work together, but I provide the direction, and that's what I will continue to do. So most of you will not see any change. It'll just be a different title. I'm, I'm taking a step down, and, and God's timing, Derek is taking a step up in that leadership. I'm doing it because this needs to happen, because I will not be able to function in this role forever. I know that, and you know that. But I'm also doing it because a time in my life has come where I have got to have the freedom to promote the Fearless Series for Women. Otherwise, it's going to be another one of those great things that nobody ever saw. Yeah. I'm the only one that can really get it out there to the churches. And it is completed. We're ready to start streaming it from, our, from the website, the Fearless Series website. I've written the workbook. I've written the study guide. And now it's a matter of getting into the hands of churches. And I'm the only person on the planet that can do that. It's gonna, seriously, it's, it's my baby. It's my passion. And so I'm going to have to take the lead on that. And I'm going to have to do some traveling. I'm going to have to do some, 
some conferences. I'm going to have to do some exhibiting at conferences and those kinds of things. I've got two or three set up. And I just need the freedom to be able to say, my responsibility is the teaching on Sunday morning, still continue to work with Derek, and beyond that, I have no role. Other than, as an extension of this body of believers, to take the Fearless Series for Women out there to the world and to the church that so desperately needs it. I am so excited that God has provided Derek for this place. We noticed it years ago that this is where we were going, and I have strategically been planning this for years. It's time to pull the trigger on this part. And really what I really want to see happen is that someday when I'm not here at all, either here physically or able to be here physically or dead or incapacitated, or I walk out the back door, that this church will not miss a beat. In the ministry, in the teaching, in anything we do. If I do anything less, I have failed in my responsibility to the kingdom of God and to this church that I was privileged to be able to start. So 37 years ago. So that's where we are. And, I, and, and the elders have, have unanimously agreed with that. I am at peace with this. I'm excited that God has provided Derek. And so I want you to uh, uh, accept that. We gave you the letter. It gives more explanation to that. And as you hear things, just show the letter. Don't try to explain it because this is, this is what I have requested. It's what I desire at this time in my life. It's what I need to do, what I have to do. This will always be my church. Until they kick, take me out of here feet first, City on a Hill is going to be my church home. That's right. Let me just say that um, there, there, there will never be enough words to convey the gratitude that I have for the opportunity that I've been given here. I've, I've said for a long time that, that Reeves is an anomaly, a unicorn. Um, I've been called worse, but better. You have. <laughs> that, that you don't have pastors, you don't find pastors for 37 years of one church often. The, the sort of legacy position that he's in is a super rare bird. And, and when you do find them, you never find them sharing their pulpit with anyone. And for him to give me the opportunity that he did uh, almost, what was that, 2012, almost nine years ago, um, is, is truly a remarkably rare thing. And uh, from my background, from my upbringing to where I am today, it, it is only possible by the hand of God and through the people of God, the chiefest of them being James. And uh, I hope you will always hear from me echoes of his uh, impact on my life. Uh, I learned to preach. I learned to study. I learned to lead under him. And I have no aspirations to do anything differently than I've already been doing. People have asked me, you know, you know, sir, you know, get in there and, 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 and mix things up, anything that you're looking to change. And I've said, well, no, because I'm not getting in there to do anything. I've been in there for about two years now. Uh, I've just been doing it behind the scenes. And even with the, the title, uh, James will be a resource to me as long as he'll agree to be a resource to me. Um, and, and I don't plan on, on veering away from that. Why would I veer away from the wisdom and experience that he provides? And so um, let me just say to you that I, I promise to uh, both love you and piss you off as much as he has over the last 40 years. If you can accomplish that, it will be truly will be a, a sign from God yes. that you were the man for the job. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll go rescue the workers from your children. That's right. Father, thank you for uh, your goodness. Thank you for your truth that stands regardless of what the world does around us. Your truth is consistent. It is the same. It never changes. Mm. 
it becomes like an anchor for us to stand upon. We thank you for that. May we have the courage to not only confess your truth behind these doors where it is safe, but to be willing to be fools in the eyes of the world for the truth that you've given us. Thank you for Derek. You've raised him up for a time like this. I pray that you will, Lord, just fill him with your power. Give me the ability, Father, as I go out there to promote the Fairness Series, to yes, get sir. this into the hands of ministry leaders where women can experience help, hope, and healing from the plague of sexual abuse. Mm. This is our prayer in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. See you.